Um, Jim said something about volume. Yep. Why don't you guys open to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be starting in verse 12 and going through verse 20. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised up both the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who's joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Paul's letter to the Corinthians shows us that he has to correct them about their sinful behaviors. Paul reinforces his sexual, excuse me, Paul reinforces his instructions regarding sexual morality and ethics here in chapter 6. This is an important topic to Paul and it should be an important topic to us as well. The sexual ethics of today's culture go against biblical sexual ethics. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are new creations in Christ, and this includes the way we think and how we view sexual morality. Let's go back to verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Christian liberty is a topic that's a frequent theme in Paul's writings. Christian liberty is freedom uh, from the Levitical law. In Acts, we see that the Jerusalem decree said that Gentile believers were not to be put under the yoke of the law. The other side of Christian liberty is to freedom not to exercise our rights. This goes against our present culture, where we demand the freedom to exercise our constitutional rights. As Christians, we place others before ourselves. Paul gave a few examples of Christian liberty in his various letters. In Romans, he writes how a person could esteem one day above another, or how a person could esteem all days the same. To the Colossians, he wrote, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or, or a new moon or Sabbath. Love is to be the guiding factor when we exercise Christian liberty. Paul wrote, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. As Christians, we set aside our liberty if it benefits another. We're to give up our rights and serve one another. In Acts 18, we read that Paul spent 18 months uh, teaching in Corinth. He must have taught about a freedom in Christ and how Christians are to exercise that freedom. In Philippians, Paul tells us to, to esteem others as greater than ourselves. And we're supposed to look out for the interest of others. Clearly, the Corinthians were not looking out for one another. When they observed the Lord's Supper, some people ate before others, leaving people hungry 
and other people were drunk. The Corinthians were placing self above all. When Paul says, all things are lawful for me, he's talking about amoral actions. These are actions that are they're neither right or wrong. The Christians had taken the principle of Christian liberty and applied it, applied it to areas that were not appropriate. In Romans, Paul asks, shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. Christian liberty is never used as a license to sin. We should go farther than not sinning. Liberty should not be exercised when the end result is not helpful, or as the King James says, expedient. Expedient is an action that is convenient and practical, although possibly improper or immoral. We love first, and we consider others before ourselves. Again, we should never use Christian liberty to sin. Paul writes, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Some commentaries state that Paul's words here are me brought under the power of sin. This would be a Christian who uses his or her liberty to overindulge on, in food or alcohol. The idea could also be proposed that a good habit such as physical exercise can enslave a person. Even good things can enslave a person. The Corinthians were not enslaved to good things. Most every sin was okay, and they were even approved of. Looking at these verses, we see that Paul said, don't use Christian liberty as a license to commit sexual sin. It's not helpful. Another explanation of brought under the power of any is found in Pastor David Guzik's commentary. Uh, David Guzik suggests that Paul meant brought under the power of any was being brought under the power of someone else's body. Paul repeatedly has to address sexual sin in the Corinthian church. The culture in Corinth was morally bankrupt. Prostitution had permeated the society to such a degree that people didn't give it a thought. In AD 20, the Greek historian Strabo wrote, the temple of Aphrodite was once so rich that it had acquired more than a thousand prostitutes donated by both men and women to, to the service of the goddess. And because of them, the city used to be jam-packed and became wealthy. Strabo wrote this about 30 years before Paul's first visit to Corinth. Visiting a prostitute was just another way of life in, the, in Corinth, and it was erroneously justified using Christian liberty. Verse 13 says, for the stomach, food for the stomach, and stomach for foods. When people get hungry, they eat food. We were created with specific drives. We need and desire air, water, and food. The Corinthians included the sex drive. It was likely the phrase, foods for the stomach and stomachs for the food, was a common expression used by the Corinthians to justify feeding their sexual appetites. They figured if the body wants sex, that desire should be appeased. After all, if you have an itch, you scratch it. They were twisting the gospel, which James calls the law of liberty, and using it as a license to sin. The Corinthians lived like it didn't matter how they behaved because they were under grace. Another possible motive for misusing their Christian liberty was Gnosticism. The Gnostic beliefs were varied and opposing at times. 
They believed in dualism. Humans are made of body and spirit, and these two things are as different as light and darkness. Some Gnostics believed that all matter was evil. The human body was a material object, object, therefore it was inherently sinful. In response, they became ascetics, people who denied every desire of the flesh. On the opposite end of the spectrum of Gnosticism were those who became hedonists. They believed that the body was evil, so it didn't matter what was done with the body. Foods for the stomach and stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. We have appetites that are not evil, like hunger, but we don't live solely for food. We can acknowledge that we can enjoy a delicious meal while recognizing that food has no eternal value. God designed us to have a sexual appetite, but we don't live solely for sex. We must not live to gratify our flesh. We're to pick up our cross and follow Jesus daily. We're to deny ourselves. Denying ourselves can be something like, like fasting, but it can also be denying sinful desires. Paul writes that God will destroy it and them, referring to stomach and food. This quick little phrase references our glorified bodies, when we'll no longer have to eat to sustain life. We'll be able to eat, just like Jesus did after the resurrection, but we won't have to. Paul now switches gears and said, Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Eating, aside from gluttony, is not a sinful act. In contrast, sexual immorality is always sinful. In this verse, Paul uses the word pornaya, which refers to illicit sex. Pornaya is translated in many different ways throughout the New Testament, including adultery, fornication, and various other debased practices. There's little value in listing all of the depraved sexual acts that humans can do. It simply wouldn't be edifying or beneficial for us. God is against sexual immorality, but not sex. God's plan for sex is meant to be expressed within the bonds and confines of marriage between one man and one woman. God's plan for sex leads to closeness and intimacy between a husband and wife, which is a mystery that speaks of Christ and his church. The biblical concept of sexual immorality goes beyond physical actions with another person. It includes looking at explicit materials, such as pornographic pictures or videos, reading sensual books and magazines, or anything else that leads to sexual gratification outside of the covenant of marriage. Sexual immorality can also include lustful and lascivious thoughts. Job said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look on a young woman? And Jesus said, I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Sexual immorality most often begins in the heart and mind. Christians don't plan to be sexually immoral. They're tempted, and then they, they indulge that fantasy, and they start to think about it, and eventually they will act upon it. Be careful what you think about these things. 
Paul says the body is for the Lord, but so is the mind. Again, Paul says the body is for the Lord. This means we use our bodies to bring glory to God. We honor him by how we use our bodies. People see that those of us who are married are faithful and committed to our spouses. We love them and we honor them. Those of us who are single live pure, chaste lives. We're different from the world around us, whether we're single or married. And Paul, excuse me, Paul in Romans says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We, we must think properly about human sexuality. We have to bring our thinking on human sexuality in line with God's plan, God's holy plan. We transform our views from the former way of thinking. We go against how the world thinks. The world bombards us with a culture that demands personal autonomy. We're taught that our bodies are ours and we're free to do with our bodies which we wit- with whatever we want. We're told it's my body, my choice. And we're also told that what we do with our bodies doesn't hurt anyone. These are, these are lies from the pit of hell. God designed our bodies. He knows what is best about our bodies, is best for our bodies, and he cares about our bodies. The Lord is for the body. We addressed hedonistic Gnosticism in the Corinthian church. Unfortunately, similar thinking has crept into today's church. Some people think that God only cares about our souls and our spirit and our spiritual lives, but this is not the case. In Philippians, Paul speaks of Christ being magnified in his body. Our bodies matter. Paul closed his first letter to the Thessalonians and wrote, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and bodies be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God truly cares about our bodies and what we do with them. Verse 14, And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. (laughs) This verse is great. This verse is the beauty of the gospel. God raised Jesus from the dead and will be raised with him. Romans 8.11 tells us, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Again, the Lord cares about our bodies. We won't be floating around heaven as some disembodied spirits. We'll have a real physical body. Before the ascension, we see that Jesus had a real glorified physical body. We can rest in the assurance that we'll have glorified physical bodies. But how do we have that assurance? It's through the work of Jesus on the cross. He lived a sinless life. He went before the high priest and Pontius Pilate. He didn't defend himself when accused. He was condemned to die. He sacrificed himself for our sins. He died an excruciating 
and humiliating death because he loves us. He loves each one of you specifically. He took on the sin of the whole world, your sin and my sin. Jesus, fully human and God of very God, died in our place so that we don't have to. To know fully and truly we have the assurance of eternal life with Christ, all we have to do is follow what's written in Romans 10. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If there's anyone here who hasn't done that, anyone who hasn't placed their trust in Christ, I want you to know today is the day of salvation. Don't delay. None of us is guaranteed tomorrow. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says shall become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Paul has the habit of asking rhetorical questions. Paul twice asked the question, do you not know? It kind of has the idea of like, don't you guys get it? He asked questions to which the answer should already be known. Paul asked, don't you know that you're part of the body of Christ? Don't you understand? He did the same thing in Romans 6 when he asked, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. The answer is obvious. Paul Paul asks another rhetorical question that doesn't require an answer. He writes something that should be abhorrent to us. Paul asks if he should take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute. The horror of this thought is overwhelming. It's vile. It's disgusting. Unfortunately, as Christians, when we commit any act of sexual immorality, we do just that. It's shameful. As Christians, we're part of the body of Christ. This includes our physical bodies. Being part of the body of Christ is not only spiritual. Paul in Ephesians writes, We are members of his body, of his flesh and his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. John Piper explains these verses really well. He writes, The union of a man and a woman in marriage is a mystery, because it conceals, as in a parable, a truth about Christ and the church. The divine reality hidden in the metaphor of marriage is that God ordained a permanent union between his son and church. Human marriage is the earthly image of this divine plan, as God willed for Christ and his church to become one body. How wonderful is it to know that we're permanently united with Christ? In a similar way, a person who commits sexual immorality becomes one with the other person. We see that in the verse from Ephesians. Society teaches us that sex is only a physical act. There's, there's nothing more to it. The Bible disagrees with this. Jesus in Mark 10, 8 said, The two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. A husband and wife being one flesh, it's not an illustration or a euphemism. One flesh is part of God's design. 
Something happens at a deeper level, at a spiritual level. A bond is formed. The person who has multiple sexual encounters is creating a bond and then breaking it over and over again. They're actually harming themselves. Verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Paul transitions from the idea of one flesh to the idea that a person who is joined with Christ is of one spirit with him. (laughs) How wonderful and magnificent are the mysteries of salvation in Christ. Jesus wants all of us, body and spirit. And we can have this union through faith. Verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Paul gives a stern warning about sexual immorality. He says, we are to flee. There will be some temptations that we will endure. James writes, blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who who love him. Sexual temptation is not one that's to be endured. Again, we are to flee. We're to run from sexual temptation. We cannot think that we'll be strong enough to fight that temptation. That's foolishness. An example of how we're to deal with sexual temptation is found in Genesis 39. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And it came to pass after these things that the master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There was no one greater in the house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her, to lie with her or be with her. But it happened about this time, when Joseph went into the house to do his work, none of the men of the house was inside. She caught him by the garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand hand, and fled and ran outside. Joseph was faithful to God, and he would not commit wickedness with his master's wife. Potiphar's wife tried over and over to get him into bed. She was persistent. She was tempting Joseph every day. Joseph endured the temptation for a while, but there came a time when he was alone with her, and she was aggressive. She was pawing at him. Joseph demonstrated wisdom and is an example to all of us. He ran away. Joseph ended up in jail, but things worked out well for him in the end. If we flee sexual temptation, things will work out well for us, too. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. The New Living Translation interprets this this verse, no other sin clearly affects the body as this one does. We know that people can commit other sins using their bodies. The body becomes the agent of sin. The body is used to commit murder, assault, and theft. We can also use our mind, part of our body, to sin. We can be angry without cause, envious, bitter, harboring resentment. Sinning against our bodies 
shows us that sexual sin does something different. It harms our very core. It harms our spirit. Proverbs 6 paints a picture that illustrates how sexual immorality harms the body. Verses 26 through 29. For a prostitute will bring you to poverty, but sleeping with another man's wife will cost you your life. Can a man scoop flame into his lap and have his clothes not catch on fire? Can he walk on hot coals and not blister his feet? So it is with the man who sleeps with another man's wife. He who embraces her will not go unpunished. And in verse 32, the man who commits adultery is an utter fool, for he destroys himself. Sinning against one's own body leads to destruction. Paul gives stern warnings about sexual immorality, and he paints a a mental picture of joining Christ with a prostitute. This should cause us to reel back in disgust. These are difficult things, but the chapter ends with two glorious verses of promise and truth that we can rest in. Verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Again, Paul asks, don't you know? Feels like he's asking, weren't you listening while I was there? In chapter 3, Paul told the Corinthians that they were the temple of the Holy Spirit. He was speaking in collective terms. Paul is explaining that the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. When he says it here in chapter 6, he refers to each believer individually. Paul is going to remind the Corinthians of this again in 2 Corinthians. Let's look back to the tabernacle that the Hebrews constructed during the 40 years in the wilderness. God gave them very specific instructions on how the tabernacle should be built. At the beginning of the instructions, God explained the reason for the tabernacle. It was so that he could dwell in the midst of the people. Inside the tabernacle was the holy place. Inside of that was the holy of holies also known as the most holy place. The mercy seat was placed over the Ark of the Covenant. In Exodus 30, God said he would meet the priest at the mercy seat. In Leviticus 16, God said he would peer in the cloud over the mercy seat. God, the creator of heaven and earth, wanted to meet with humanity. This is amazing, but it gets better. In John 14, verses 16 and 17, Jesus said, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He's the Holy Spirit who leads in all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and will later be in you. We have the third member of the Trinity taking up residence in our physical bodies. God himself is living in us. Jesus in John 16 said that the Spirit will guide us in truth. Romans 8 says the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. Paul also tells Timothy to keep the good things committed to him by the Holy Spirit who indwells in both of them. In Ephesians, we see that we're sealed for the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of Holiness. We have something the Old Testament saints never had. We have the spirit of the living God dwelling in us, guiding us, teaching us, and empowering us to live lives 
that are pleasing to God and bring glory to his name. We should realize that even Jesus was indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and he was led by the Holy Spirit. The Gospels tell us at the time of Jesus' baptism, the Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove. Luke 4 records that at the beginning of his 40-day temptation, Jesus was filled with the Spirit and led into the wilderness by the Spirit. After the temptation was over, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Hebrew 9 tells us it was the power of the etern- by the power of the eternal Spirit that Jesus was able to offer himself without spot to God. Again in Romans 8, we see that the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Throughout the public ministry of Jesus, it's evident that he was dependent on the Holy Spirit. We are also to be dependent on that Spirit that dwells in us. Paul says, whom you have from God. He explained that the Spirit is from God. Jesus called the Holy Spirit the promise of the Father and instructed his followers to wait in Jerusalem until they were baptized by the Spirit, which took place on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit was poured out on those in the upper room, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. We share this same promise of the Father. We must cultivate a life that is sensitive to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. We have to learn to listen to that still, small voice. Let's reread verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Paul's do you not know, it's a two-part question. The second part can be read as, don't you know that you're not your own? Apparently the Corinthians didn't know. Romans 14.8 says, For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. We should be aware of this in our daily lives. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to Christ. We're to be walking in the good works that he has set before us. It's all too easy to live for ourselves. We fulfill our wants our di- and our desires. We exercise our rights. As Americans, we value freedom, and that's not wrong, but it's not the loftiest of goals. The cross, the empty tomb, and the coming of the Holy Spirit changes our priorities. We switch our way of thinking from the world's way and orient it to the kingdom way of thinking. We belong to the King of Kings who bought us with a price. Verse 20, For you were bought at a price, and therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Did the Corinthians understand how great a price was paid for their salvation? Do we fully understand how great a price was paid? If we did, many of us would live very differently. Let's look at the price that was paid for us. John tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The Word is the pre-incarnate second member of the Trinity, the Son. John goes on to tell us, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God took on human form. Jesus, fully God, became fully man. Philippians 2, 6 and 7 says, Being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Taking on the form of a bondservant, 
and coming in the likeness of men. John also tells us all things were made through him. The creator of heaven and earth and everything in them became a humble servant. The New Testament describes, describes Jesus as him who knew no sin. He's also our high priest, our high priest without sin. John says there's no sin in Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect and holy life. He always lived to please the Father. Jesus was always obedient to the Father. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus' death on the cross was just not physical. There was so much more. Matthew gives us one account of Jesus' passion. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus to the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him, and they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the road off of him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Our God was mocked. Our God was humiliated. They beat him, and they spit on him. On the cross, Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father forsook God the Son. God forsook God. Perfect fellowship was broken. This is the cost of salvation. Jesus drank the cup to reconcile humanity to himself. He made a way for us to be with him physically and spiritually, now and for all of eternity. Don't forget the price. Christ paid the, great, the greatest price on your behalf. He died for us while we were still sinners. We have hope because he took our sin. He died in our, he died in our place so that one day we can rise again with him. First John 2.2 2 tells us, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The only proper response to this glorious news is therefore glorify God in your body and spirit, which are God's. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we're free to gather together, to study your word, to edify one another. Thank you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Yeah, let's just all stand and uh, do the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost.
Yeah, thank you guys for coming to church. Uh, next week, I think Sam is back next week, right? Yep. Okay. So pray for him as he's in Peru teaching there, and uh, see you guys next week. You are sent.